quantum stuff, a ruby vulnerability, a dark web takedown, and hospital robots. What could possibly go wrong? All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. With me, as always, is Paul Ducklin. Hello, Doug. That introductory phrase, Ruby vulnerability. That was a tongue twister. It's actually much harder to say than you think. Mm -hmm. Well done. I was impressed. One of these days, maybe I'll practice beforehand, but today was not that day. (laughs) So That would spoil it, Doug. Exactly. Well, Paul, we like to start with a fun fact, and I have a fun fact for you about the Apple II. Its casing was inspired by, well... Kitchen appliances, of course. This was the late 70s, after all, so apparently smooth and beige were all the rage. Wow. The slidey top and a place to hold the screen. It was quite a good idea that it was sort of all in one, whereas other home computers of the day were lots of little bits that you ended up plugging together and kind of tripping over the wires or losing the power supply or putting the crocodile clip on the wrong wire and blowing something up. <laughs> I do remember our, uh, we, our family had an Apple IIc, I remember it fondly, and we will talk about the Apple II a little bit later in the show, but let's start with this uh, kind of a, an exciting, interesting bust of a dark web drug market called Hydra. Yes, a fascinating story that has been sort of folding and unfolding, I guess, for many years. Hydra It's been going for quite some years, I think at least since 2015. And the problem is, of course, that when you have a network in which the clients, the browsers, people using their browsers and the servers meet each other in the Tor network, the Onion Router network. In other words, it's not just that you're browsing into Tor, bouncing around randomly to disguise your presence in Tor and then emerging to visit a regular website. When the destination of the transaction is inside Tor, then not only does the server not know who its clients are, which gives you that, I guess, that confidence to go shopping because you're dealing with crooks, but even if they're rogues, they don't know your IP number, so they can't hand it over, even if they give away their logs. And vice versa, the client can't identify where the server is. So if you're a client and you're buying stuff from the dark web and you get busted, your own logs don't reveal where the actual server or servers are located. So despite starting in 2015, possibly even earlier, it was only very recently that the servers used got tracked down and the whole thing got taken off the air. Uh, As well as selling illegal drugs, uh, you know, some people say, well, maybe that counts as a victimless crime or in some jurisdictions, the things that selling are legal. So why is that a problem? It seems there were also some other, <coughs> how can I put it, worrisome services that were offered, including forged documents. You can imagine very handy for cyber criminals who want to trick their way past know your customer checks and uh, money laundering services, coin tumblers that would take cryptocurrency and mix them all together. And 17 million customer accounts were affected and uh, upwards of 20,000 seller accounts. And Paul, when something like this happens, I think we always kind of assume that whatever servers they're ultimately connecting to, are they're just located in some abandoned mountain that's not on a map anywhere with a bunch of servers plugged in somehow. 
Of course, that's not necessarily the case because in theory, provided it's hosted by someone who just won't tell the unvarnished truth if asked, that server could in theory, or servers, they could in theory be anywhere because like we said, using the Tor network to go into and reach the server not only disguises the client from the server, but also the server from the client. So tracking forwards or backwards is actually quite difficult. And this server or servers turned out to be in Germany because the German Federal Police said last in the middle of about last year, we got a tip that the servers might be in Germany. And by, you know, putting two and three and four and six together, they were able to identify a location, as I understand it, and ultimately, after an awful amount of work, then, as I imagine, they were able to get a warrant to go in and see what was really there. Well, it is a fascinating story. You can read all about it. That story is called Serious Security, Dark Web Drugs Market Hydra, taken offline by German police. Let's talk about this Ruby ASCII doc toolkit, which is popular and had a pretty uh, critical vulnerability that's now been patched. Yes, the problem here is that you might have, say, a web server or a content management system of your own or that you, someone's created for you. You might be using Ruby or Ruby on Rails or something like that. Ruby is a pretty popular web development platform. And if you are a web content creator, you probably started your life writing hand-coded HTML in VI. <laughs> like, you know, the, the rite of passage that you're supposed to go through. And after a while, you get a bit tired of writing, handwriting HTML because it is quite verbose, isn't it? Like you want to boldface something, you've got to go angle bracket, strong, angle bracket, <laughs> bold, angle bracket, slash. I mean, it just makes it unreadable. It makes it hard to proofread. And you probably graduated to something like Markdown, which is basically a pun on markup. HTML is hypertext markup language. A markdown is a simplified form. An ASCII doc, which is meant to be an even cooler form of markdown, where if you want text in bold, you just put stars on either side of it so it looks bold. And that's the idea of markdown and its, if you like, competitor or fellow traveler, ASCII doc. So loads of people probably have a content management system that lets them process input like this, the so-called simplified HTML ASCII doc markup. And it's all taken care of by libraries built into Ruby or your web system. So what happens if one of those has a bug? And that's exactly what happened here. In this case, the bug was in a specific Ruby component. Ruby components are called gems. That's a joke, I guess. Uh, called ASCII doc dash include dash ext, which is short for ASCII doctor include extension. And it's one of those things that Ruby can do this for you. There's a built-in library for ASCII doc, but here's a better library that gives you even more functionality. So you might not even know that you have this little module. And unfortunately, there was a bug in there that meant that if at the wrong point in input that a user provided, they put a line break, a backslash Ruby line continuation character, they would confuse the error checking that was meant to make sure they were referring to a URL and not to a shell command. And so you could trick the system so that when it was processing and testing your input, it passed the test. But when it came to execute or use the file, it said, oh, no, no, it's a command. And it would run any command. Ergo, instant remote code execution hole. Unauthenticated, very bad. You need to check that if you have this thing, then you need the fix. 
And the problem is not so much that the fix came out, the fact that there may be a small minority of people with web servers who have this component and just never realized it. Just like in the log4j case as a more dramatic example. Okay, and we've got instructions on uh, which version number to check for. It's 0.4.0, or there's also a link to a workaround if you like. And that article is called Popular Ruby ASCII Doc Toolkit Patched Against Critical Vulnerabilities." Get the update now on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And it is that time in the show for this week in tech history. Well, we talked a little bit about the Apple II earlier in the show. And this week in 1977, the first ever West Coast Computer Fair was held in San Francisco Civic Auditorium. Organizers expected about half of the 12,000 plus attendees who showed up at the show, the debut of the Apple II and the Commodore Pet. Many believe this momentous occasion to signify the birth of mainstream personal computing. And Paul, as it turns out, we are lucky enough to have you who had a Commodore Pet. Oh, I wish, Doug. Oh. They were way, way, way out of my price range. Oh. So were apples. Uh, I had access to one for a while. Oh, okay, there we go. When I was a youngster. Pet, the personal electronic transactor. And they were meant to be business computers. It had everything built in, the, the keyboard, but with little tiny chiclet keys. Eventually they got rid of that because the, the first versions looked a bit weird. And it had a built-in TV screen. And it had sort of front, right, center, a tape recorder built in so that it could actually reliably save and restore your programs and your data, which with other computer systems using a cassette recorder that you had lying around the house, as I'm sure you will remember, Doug, could be a very frustrating exercise. Mm -hmm. So you paid a lot more for the pet. What you didn't get was graphics. Well, you sort of did. It had a 40 by 25 screen text, but in each character location, you could actually print a character that was like a blob that filled one quarter of the square. So you could, in fact, Doug, do 80 by 50 medium resolution graphics. As Whoa. It was called. 80 by 50. Those were the days, Doug. Those were the days. Simpler times. I don't know that they were that much simpler. No, no, we always say simpler times, but they never are. They were certainly slower. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, all right. Let's um, shift gears from the distant past to perhaps the not-too-distant future, as OpenSSH is going post-quantum with uh, its cryptography. It's a little light reading for everyone. But what's going on with this article here, Paul? Yes, well, I'm sure... Many or most of our listeners will have heard of quantum computers. They're all the PR rage at the moment. Loosely speaking, inside a quantum computer, you can, thanks to the magic of quantum mechanics, you can have what I believe is called in the jargon a superposition of results of a calculation. So instead of having to go through a loop of saying, well, I'm going to go through all these 1024 possibilities, I'm going to calculate this value, all the, I'm going to see which one of them works, you kind of get all the answers at the same time, and you just have to hope that there isn't sufficient noise or interference, that ultimately when you actually come to observe the result, you actually get the answer that you want coming out. And it turns out that there is a class of algorithm that can, in theory, be resolved in quick order by quantum computers if they work, 
that just happened to be the algorithms relied upon for their complexity in preventing some of today's cryptographic algorithms getting cracked, notably those involved in public key cryptography, the type of encryption that you use when you're connecting across the internet, TLS, for example, or SSH, Secure Shell. And so if quantum computers come along and they actually work as advertised, then it's possible that the cryptographic algorithms we are using right now won't be strong enough. Now, it turns out there are other algorithms you can use. They're just a bit more complicated or they require cryptographic keys that are annoyingly larger. But we already have algorithms that we think can't be cracked using these quantum techniques. So when a quantum computer comes along, we shall need to switch to those so-called PQC, post-quantum computing algorithms, just to make sure that nobody with the sort of money to build a massive quantum computer can crack our cryptographic codes at will. And so the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, in the US, have for several years been running a competition, imaginatively called PQC, post-quantum cryptography, where they said, like we did with, say, AES for symmetric encryption, let's have anyone in the world can come in. It's open to all people from all countries, no holds barred. Everything has to be open and public so that if someone wants to put a backdoor in there, anyone else can have a look. We're going to have this you know, massive global competition to try and find some new algorithms to replace things like RSA and elliptic curve cryptography that we use today. Which is great, but good cryptography takes years to get right. Trust and consensus when there are you know, 192 different countries involved takes ages to build up. And when you, when you invent new cryptographic algorithms or refine existing ones in brand new ways, Sometimes you don't have the analytical tools yet to be able to convince yourself that they are as safe as you thought. So this can take years, and it's still ongoing, this competition, years later. It's now in its final stage. There's a list of here, here are ones that haven't been kicked out yet, but the final, final decision hasn't been made. But the OpenSSH team, OpenSSH is used for secure remote connections on pretty much, I would imagine, every Unix and Linux system in the world these days. The OpenSSH team, who famously tried to be proactive about security, it's the same people who are behind OpenBSD, decided we're going to take the first step. We know the competition isn't finished. We're going to pick one of the algorithms that's, in, that's left in the competition, one called NTRU Prime, and we're going to build a new encryption system that may be a little bit more cumbersome than the current defaults, but we are going to make this the default. And the motivation is, well, what happens if the quantum computer that might crack this comes along in 15 years' time? Do we want that computer to be able to crack data that was actually exchanged one, three, five, 15 years ago? The sooner we start, the sooner we're resilient against today's data being cracked in the future using similar techniques. That's the theory. All right. Fascinating story. You can read all about it. It's called OpenSSH Goes Post-Quantum, switches to qubit-busting crypto by default on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And Paul, our final story, you had my attention but with these four words, critical, bugs, hospital, robot. That's all it took. Yes. Interestingly, Doug, although these were embarrassingly 
IoT level software flaws in a robot system, who would have thought? The real problem here, probably because they're hospital robots, is not AI run amok or the robot revolution, robot rising, but actually the fact that at least one of these holes that was not in the robots themselves, but actually in the web portal through which they were managed, could have been a handy way of implanting malware on multiple computers inside a hospital. And sadly, Doug, when we think of hospitals and widespread malware attacks, that's a different kind of R than a robot revolution normally and very odiously means ransomware, doesn't it? These aren't Terminator-style humanoid robots. These are basically rolling cabinets that have medicine and they can carry a bunch of stuff and roll around the hospital. And the idea is that uh, some of these critical bugs, you could be used to access some of these medicines and um, control these robots to make them go places they shouldn't go. And they're big, giant, heavy cabinets. No, they're not humanoid robots. They're not making amazing, life-changing decisions in the hospital. They're not doing operations. There's no AI involved. It's just that they're these hulking things that move around. So the idea that somebody could wait till one's coming past and then maybe go next to the mobile phone and hack into the system and go pop open draw D and steal all the pethidine or whatever it is, that doesn't sound like a great idea. So there were five different sorts of bug that the researchers found, and four of them were worryingly relevant to the robots themselves, or the bugs were in the web portal, as I understand, or the the web servers that control them, insufficient authentication, insufficient input validation, allowing either rogue users to be added to the system for future reference, including admin users. So you can basically, you break in now, which might leave a little bit of a trace, like some weird network traffic, but you create a user that can come back in later and look like a genuine user of the system and do what they like. Uh, They could snoop on passwords. So if you use a username, you could actually recover, oh dear, I shouldn't have to say this, Doug, but I have to, a unsalted, unitterated MD5 hash of the password. Mm, Why? So if you copy and paste that hash into your favorite search engine and click find, you will find someone else has already solved that for you within about 200 milliseconds. So you just shouldn't be doing that. Uh, They also had the, the, the chance to send commands to a robot. So presumably you could either intercept a command and modify it, or you could just inject ones of your own. And that include a whole load of stuff like altering its speed. Like It's not like you could get them to go 100 miles an hour down the corridor. I think they're limited to three quarters of a meter per second, which is about just under three kilometers an hour. But you could make the robot veer off course. Like we said, you could pop open drawers that are supposed to be secure. And the robots have obviously got cameras on to help guide them and you could take photos but last and by no means least cross-site scripting bugs in the portal that's used to manage the robots in other words that the legitimate users in the hospital who look after this whole network of fetch and carry robots cross-site scripting vulnerabilities that in theory would mean that you could get someone to go to the regular site and it would inadvertently might suck in content from a completely untrusted site without giving them any warning. This would be a terrible irony, wouldn't it? Robots that are meant to save the day, bring trusted medications to needy patients that 
the system that operates those robots could be used as a vehicle for implanting malware here, there, and everywhere throughout the network. Not a very comforting thought. <laughs> of course. All right. And we've got some advice for the good people. One of our personal favorites around here, a deep cut from one of our albums, but we like this song very much. Validate thine inputs and thine outputs, please. Yep. This is certainly the killer riff. <laughs> it's on the, <laughs> uh, cross-site scripting, which is one of the vulnerabilities found here, can happen in various ways. But generally, the idea is that you you take a legitimate user to a legitimate site that they trust, and somehow you have a URL in which some of the data that you put in the URL or in the web request gets sent back in the reply in a way that doesn't take into account where in the web page it will appear. And you can imagine that if I say hello and I type in Doug because you made me click a URL that had some parameter Doug in it, that's fine. If the web page in the middle of the data contains D-O-U-G, it will come out on my screen as Doug. But let's say I trick you into looking up the username angle brackets script type equals JavaScript, angle bracket, long JavaScript program here, angle bracket slash script, angle bracket, and your web server returns that very unmodified data into the browser, then the browser doesn't display that text. It goes, ah, angle bracket script. That means that what comes next is a trusted JavaScript program. I should run it. And it came from the regular, from the real server. And therefore, it can be trusted. It's not a third-party content. I'm up for this. And so when you're accepting data that you store and replay later, like, say, the name of a medication or the ward name or use something that you'll put in a web page later, or when it's something that's put in a request that you're echoing back to the user, you need to make absolutely sure that you do not let that untrusted content turn into a programming command to the browser that renders it instead of just being data to be displayed. And this is absolutely fundamental when processing untrusted data. Validate thine inputs and thine outputs, Doug. Just to just to repeat the riff one last time. Love with it. Full flanger and heavy reverb. All right, that is five critical bugs fixed in hospital robot control system on Naked Security at Sophos.com. And as the sun begins to set on our show for this week, let's hear from one of our readers. Buckle up, friends, on a post written four years ago called, No, Mark Zuckerberg isn't messaging you about winning a Facebook lottery. Reader Lori writes, in part, and recently, in the year 2022, mind you, I was just contacted on WhatsApp saying that it was Mark Zuckerberg that I had won $5 million in a random Facebook lottery and a car, that all I had to do was send $675 for the FedEx delivery fee. I even saw videos and messages from six people who thanked Mark for their winning and saw the debit cards and certificates they had won. One guy even won money and two cars. Imagine that. The big convincing part was this guy could not spell complete sentences or the right words. So, Paul... This is truly the scam that keeps on scamming. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, shouldn't laugh. You know, there are people who are vulnerable or are desperate or I don't know what they're thinking who maybe think they're going to, they're going to look into this 
And, you know, next thing they know, well, maybe you haven't won 5 million, but maybe there's something in this for you. Maybe I've got a cryptocurrency thing for you. Maybe I've got a this. Maybe I've got a that. Maybe I've got a job. You never know. The point is, even if you go in with your eyes, anything other than wide open, you don't have to have them completely shut. You're walking into a den of thieves. How are these still around four years later? There's got to be some way to recognize this, even if it's looking for the words Facebook and lottery together. Why don't they get blocked, detected and blocked? And just or, flagged or, as, or at as, least flagged. Like, like, this looks suspicious. We, this has been going around for four years, and it's, it's, it's suspicious. But remember that in today's instant messaging systems, part of the attraction for many people is that they're end-to-end encrypted. Yeah, yeah. That's, so yeah. when I send you a message, the whole idea is WhatsApp can't decide, well, I don't like the way you're talking to Doug. I'm not going to let you do that. And more importantly, WhatsApp can say, no, we actually don't know what that is. Don't come, don't bother asking. And, you know, that is an attraction that you can have a secure conversation. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on this. The uh, scam that won't die and wait till we get to post-quantum encryption and these messages are encrypted even harder. Post-Zuckerberg scams. Yeah, exactly. PZS. It doesn't take a lot for scams to rise apparently from the dead. It's probably not helped by the fact that historically on social media there does seem to be a reasonable minority of people who kind of figure look i i know this is a hoax but i'll just pass i'll pass it on just in case because what harm can it do i'm just telling them don't do it but of course what it does is it means it gives a whole lot of time wasting effort and energy to something that people could do without being distracted by from a cybersecurity point of view. All right. Well, everyone keep your head on a swivel. Be careful. Yeah. Um, and if you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles or hit us up on social at Naked Security. That is our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.